McCabe, who has joined us from Sligo. We're very grateful um, to you for coming to have a chat and to read your story, Lalula. Um, would you like to introduce yourself just in terms of tell us uh, what you'd like to write, where you are with your writing? Hmm. Uh, I am, um, where am I with my writing? <laughs> I started writing in 2014. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was a visual artist before that. I'm a visual artist, but I do writing for the most part. Um, I started a degree, an honours degree in writing and literature two years ago now. I'm just finishing my second year. So that has kind of really focused the mind, doing yeah. that course. Um, where am I at with my writing? Uh, That's a really horrible question. It Sorry. is. It's Sorry. hard to I know. Don't mean, what I mean is, um, you know, is, is this, um, so you, do you write exclusively short stories? Do you write flash fiction? Right, yeah, do you no, write, no, are you interested I, in writing longer pieces? Yeah. or? I write, at the moment actually, more flash fiction than short stories. Because of just the time constraints uh, mm. with school and with my two boys, though the elder one just turning 18 would not like being called a boy, but um, <laughs> looking after them. Um, flash fiction is just much, it's just easier for me to do. Yeah. I like to sit down and accomplish, at least get the bones of something done in one yeah. sitting. Yeah. So I've got short periods of time where I can do that. So it's mostly flashes at the moment. That's sure. really interesting how um, a writer's life can kind of determine, yeah. dictate which form they're sort of naturally drawn to at fine, that time. And that's fine, because in that a way... could change in different circumstances. And, and that's why I'm writing, because mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't able to do visual art anymore with with my environment where I was living and space wise and also with lots of small kids because I used to look after other people's kids too and uh, I was just some of the material I was working with just wasn't appropriate I just couldn't Mm. have it around so visual art had to stop and it stopped for many years everything stopped for many years I just couldn't go back to it and it never occurred to me to take up the pen and start writing even though I had used script an awful lot in my paintings um, it just hadn't occurred to me so that's fine I stopped and was busy anyway with kid rearing and so on. And um, and then actually through my friend, my good friend Una Mannion uh, started a writing group just in early 2014. She invited me in. I said, why not? Something just to start to focus the creative mind again. And it became it became the new outlet for me. It was brilliant because it's the same. It's the same process for me as it is to to start anything, um, a painting or any. I used to do some sculptures and performance art as well. So any creative idea has the same roots so writing writing was the same and in what way does that does it come to you as an image then is, it, is the visual uh, important no it's an idea you know okay. it's no more than if i was i just it was mostly painting i was doing so you know if i was if i was doing a painting it, it's an idea that i'm trying to represent in the painting it's not you know might not know what the image is going to be but it's an idea mm-hmm. usually quite an abstract idea or concept that i'm trying to put forward uh, and then you and then you paint it um same with the story now. So it'll, it'll be a concept, you know, the concept mm. of memory loss, the concept of, mm. of, well, you know, whatever. There's, there's many yeah. different things, and and you, you explore that in the story. Mm. So that's. Uh, and so it, in this story, in Lalila, um, what is so sort of, uh, sort of shocking or surprising for the reader, I think, well, from my experience of reading it, um, is when you realise sort of how the son who is grown son how he is almost sort of um drawn to his mother's memory loss or sort of her um being a little bit back in the past where he was still in this kind of complete family unit and how you know how his relationship with 
with her sort of exposes his mm-hmm. his loss in terms of other relationships. That's right, yeah. So yeah. so heartbreaking <laughs> that yeah. happens there, how loss can just be happening in all these different places at once. A, a lot of th- those kind of... Um, things in the story developed as the story was, was, was going. And I started writing the story was an old man, an elderly man, and his daughter. Mm. And, and I switched I switched around um, after a while. And it is about, yeah, it, um, I suppose despite the fact that, the, that the, the old woman has entirely lost her memory, she still has something over her son. Uh, you know, mm. in, in a benevolent way, she's still the mother, the mother head. Mm. And he wants that from her. So he's filling in the, the, the blanks for her. And he is, um, it, it's to support himself in his own life that he needs that too. Yeah. So the references to um, nestlings and fledglings and you know, all of those bird references. I don't know what my fascination with the bird thing is, but I think it's because it's a species that is so far removed from the human species mm-hmm. in evolutionary terms. And, and, and they're, you know, they're not cuddly. Yeah. You know, I, I had a, this time, actually not quite this time last year, but um, in June of last year, I had a baby magpie come into my life. <laughs> come into my life. <laughs> yeah, a wee magpie fell out of a tree. I saved the magpie. And he's, he stayed in with us. He, we, I raised him, so he was you know flying around in the house outside yeah. with my dogs, my sons, uh, Peko. And uh, he stayed with us for maybe about four months. Yeah. Then he disappeared like to think he disappeared into the distance I don't think so he wasn't mature enough yeah. to do that um, so I think something happened to him but anyway while we had him it was brilliant because there was no affection he wasn't interested in us and I love that I, you know, he, he took from us mm-hmm. took his food took his shelter but compared to my do- I have four dogs compared mm-hmm. to my dogs who are so you, I suppose yeah. we're all mammals where you know, we, we need affection we're always kind of wanting to touch each yeah, other and yeah. cuddle up There's and all the rest of it the bird doesn't have that the bird yeah. is business mm-hmm. Bus- I am you know the, the business bird you know yeah. Yeah. and I think I'm quite fascinated by that and yet it's, it's a brilliant you know raises their young it's, has, has, a, has, a, has a system mm-hmm. you know um, so maybe that's what I'm. That's really interesting yeah. because the character, um, the mother in this story, you know, she whenever you kind of revisit her as she was before dementia, she is quite like business. You oh, know, yeah. she's like the business yeah. of walking through the wood, and she yeah. is quite pragmatic and yeah. really strong woman. Yeah. And um, so that's interesting hearing how maybe that was. Yeah, interesting because sometimes those those connections become yeah. apparent after the writing is yeah. over. In fact, yeah, always those yeah. connections become apparent after mm. the writing is over. Because if, if I'm too conscious of that when I'm writing, mm. it becomes falsified in some mm. way. So I do really try to write mm. just from, you know, from the subconscious, sounds a bit silly, but from something below the intellect. It's not really figured out. It's like, this feels right. This is the right direction. You know, talking about the song system the bird has. There's something there I know that's important to this story. And when it's all mm. finished and I'm rereading it, maybe... A month later, that the connection will 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 be obvious to me then. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's so interesting. It's, and but there, there's something as well about you know the fragility of the woman as she is mm-hmm. in her later stage as we all become older and more frail or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's a strange sort of I don't know juxtaposition is maybe not the right word, but um, with birds <laughs> that have that but they also have this kind of access to freedom mm-hmm. that she does and doesn't have so it's yeah. very there's so much going on there yeah. in terms of yeah how all the things overlap mm-hmm. and then go in different directions um but would you like to read some of the story I for would. us please
Lalala. Yes. And are you warm? Hmm? Are you warm? Yes. Yes, indeedy. The sun warms the room something brilliant. Can you feel the sun? Hmm? Here, give me your hands. They look cold. You're holding them fierce tight. Looks like you're about to throw a punch. Are you about to swing? Left jab. Right cross. A hook. Hmm? He taps her fingers. Papery skin, taut on bone. Her eyes are drawn, listless to his touch. She stares at her hands as if seeing them for the first time. He waits. She unfurls fist in a leaden splay and watches the fingers flare slow. The raw nails like ragged golden husks. Crikey ma, but these fingers are shocking cold. Are you cold? Yes. Right-o, I'll pull up your blinds, let in more of this sun I've been blabbing on about. Am I the only marvellous, hmm? Here he is, woohoo, MMA champ of the world, the notorious. He struts to her sitting room window, bobbing his head like a boxer, swinging arms wide, kicking legs out. Her eyes follow, saliva thread hanging from lip. He's her yardstick. There is nothing but him, a middle-aged man of vague familiarity, moving towards a brightness in the wall. His phone bleats, stinging his stride. The girl's. He jerks the blind and white sun rolls into the room. There now, isn't that better, me lady? Yes. He searches for something to do within her sight. Will I put on some music, ma? What will I put on? Strumming through her CD collection, he chooses an old favourite of hers. Dawn Chorus, a recording of Woodland Birdsong. He mutes his phone, burying it deep in the pocket of his combat cargo shorts. He settles cross-legged on the light-filled floor between her wheelchair and the empty black hearth, thin calves protruding from baggy camouflage fabric. He puts his hand in her outspread palm. She closes her finger, fingers around it, displaying a physical intimacy she never would have when they were younger. She is of a poised generation, closed to indulgence. Bolted to her, his next hour is sealed. He will give no thought to the phone lost within the folds of his clothing, its memory laden with messages from his daughters. We'll give no thought to the charging desktop on his kitchen table back at home. Give no thought to letting out the pup, no thought to clocking in on Instagram to like the girls' posts, picking them up later from school, bringing them to Supermax, dropping them home. A recording of Woodland Birdsong begins. Coils of hissing white noise girdle a lone bird call rising from the woods. He strains to hold on to the minuscule voice beneath the forest's muffled dawn. The previous month, his mother had spent two weeks in St. Phelan's nursing home. Respite for his stepfather, her occasional stays there have become routine in the past year as her, conditions, as her condition deepens. Usually he drops by, taking a break from the desktop, turning up at lunchtime to feed her. He had not been so vigilant on her very first day, arriving at the ward to find her bereft, chin and chest covered in mashed food, staring at the fork still clutched in her strong hand. He had stood looking at his sunken mother. Lousy guilt soldered an indelible mark onto him as he tut-tutted at no one in particular and changed her sodden paper bib. Her form had been an erratic lag, folding and unfolding. Sometimes she would remember how to eat, sometimes she wouldn't and would just sit there, head back, mouth open like a nestling. Sometimes she would start off remembering, then forget. 
Sometimes the reverse happened, and she would try to wrestle the plastic fork back off him, scowling with the bearing of an old tabby cat. He had stayed ever ready for either feeding approach, bird or cat, and wagered to himself which one she would be. His prize, if he got it right, was a Kit Kat with his nursing home coffee. More often than not, he had slurped from the styrofoam cup minus Kit Kat. Feeding time in the nursing home had always been tricky. He would feed her or watch her try to feed herself. He would warble merrily about anything that came to mind, always in the present. The variations of pastel on the ward walls. Is that green or blue? Maybe blue, greeny blue. The chart music on the radio. I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. South Paul stands before her, striking the air to the tinny beat. The insistent lament of phones calling out from beneath plastic sacks of urine-drenched laundry, calling from within pockets or from deep inside handbags under chairs. The wheelchair-accessible taxis ramping up and down, drivers making loud claims about the weather in contented country accents. That'll do, not too bad, could be worse, grand stuff, I've seen better. The warmth of his hand in hers, her bloodless fingers closing tenderly around his like a Venus flytrap the earth smell of parsnips, the sweetness of the yoghurt used to camouflage her pills. She had recently begun to crunch through them rather than swallow them whole. He thought the taste must be insufferable, whether she could name it or not. Sometimes she would focus on one of the other women in her ward, as if she had just noticed them. Slowly she would raise her arm and point. Was she hoping that by singling out this elderly patient all would become clear? He would mumble an apology, sorry, so sorry, she doesn't mean, and try to distract her with tweets he had bookmarked. The cockatoo who raps, the dog stuck in a tiny aquarium, the incident at Bellator 187. Or photos on his phone, the same ones he had enthused over the day before. And here's me, and here's me and the girls, and this is my new flat, it's got everything. Look at the amount of shelving, ma. And here's the girls last Christmas with their mother. And here's me with my staffy pup, Bantam, in our, blocks, in our block's garden. Featherweight and fearless, ma. I'm teaching it to walk on the lead. It's not going well. But no pressure, no diamonds, isn't that right? You gotta show up at the gym, as they say. Usually she would hold fast, ignoring the phone lifted up to her, gazing just above it. She would stare hard-mouthed at her neighbour on the other side. After a period of time, she would end the siege with a burst of schoolgirl laughter, as if one of them had got the joke. He would turn his back to the others to hide his smile. He would wink at his mother. I am complicit. If one of us goes to war, all of us go to war. After lunch, <clears throat> After lunch, he would wheel her out of the ward. They would trundle past the nurse's station, past jingling medicine trolleys, the occupational therapy room, the chapel, visitors' toilets, residence hairdresser, always empty, always open and the small tea shop stocked with a collection of chocolate bars and individually wrapped biscuits. They would emerge into the daylight and head for a patch of green beyond the car park, where he would name the trees and the birds. He no longer gave her flowers to inspect, because once, when he had turned around to face her after adjusting her wheelchair brakes, he had spotted the remains of a primrose dangling dainty from her mouth, her thin jaws rolling slow over the creamy petals like a cow at cud. Had he seen a sparse eyebrow rise as she stared through him? One afternoon they lingered beneath an oak, an oak at the car park's edge. He fell into silence, listening. Cars, laughter, 
traffic lights bleeping. The main entrance doors sliding politely open and shut for no one. Behind all of it, a songbird. He allowed the tenuous little trill to just be, without feeling the need to identify the bird for his mother. He looked at her. Her eyes were closed. Was she sleeping, or had she forgotten to open them? What's the difference? He closed his own and leaned against her, breathing in hospital detergent from the hoodie he gave the staff to dress her in, one belonging to his eldest daughter, emblazoned with the flaking metallic Nirvana. The bird offered its air, ending each fragile verse with a melodic question mark, waiting, then repeating the same process. Soon he heard a soft, low sound start at his side. He watched his mother purse her lips and try to mimic the bird call. She whistled, imitating the sound almost flawlessly, and waited. The response came after a pause, the bird returning, returning the song with the invitational question mark still at the end. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Do you hear me? Back and forth the lyrical exchange went between woman and bird, never deviating from the short tune, until the pauses between them lengthened, and finally the conversation expired. She closed her eyes. They wove back over the crumbling tarmac, in through the sliding doors, and down to her ward. Dreading that moment when he'd feel her bewildered stare follow him as he walked away, he had devised a new leaving process. Now, my fine girling, he would say, would you like to listen to some music after our walk, hmm? Are you tired? I'll bet you're tired of the chit-chat and would love to close your eyes and listen to some music on the headphones. I brought your CD of Vaughan Williams with me. Look, the lark ascending. You like this, ma, remember? Remember the lark ascending? Remember Alada Arvensus, the skylark? And the woodlark, ma, the woodlark. Lulula, Arborea. She would eye her surroundings, gape at him, her jaw hanging. We're back here at your bed in the ward and you must be well tired, so you'll be glad to hear I'm going to leave you be for a wee while. You rest and listen to your Vaughan Williams. Wait till you hear, you like this. He shuttered the headphones over her ears, settled his palm over her eyes. He heard the opening strains of the spiralling violin, the music and impression of a lark's unbroken song. The bird rises, circling high into the air until it is just a flickering dot in the sky its quavering vocalisation still clear as a glass chime. He felt her flutter and close her eyelids behind his hand. He left before she opened them again, knowing that when she did, she would have forgotten he was ever there. As a child, she had taught him how to recognise every tree by leaf, every bird by song. Do you know the difference between a woodlark and a skylark? Of course I do, ma. Good. Do you know the difference between a call and a song? Is there one? Yes, there is, son. Oh, what do you call a group of larks, sky or wood? Sky. I'm serious. An exaltation. Well, now, as smart as you are, do you know you can take a picture of birdsong? You can actually see the song. What's it look like? They take the song, shake sound out and map it like colours in a rainbow. You can tell which bird is singing by the waviness, but you still can't tell what they're saying. I could. Indeed. Do you know that parents teach the nestlings their very own secret language? And the young dream about it at night when they're tucked up asleep with their brothers and sisters all cosy in the nest. Cosy. Picture that, bucko, the little birdies singing away in birdland dreams, getting it wrong, getting it right, bar by bar. I wonder do they teach birdie curses, that'd be good. Don't need curses, just need to listen, to memorise and most of all to recall. No point in memorising unless you can recall, sugar. Same thing. 
It's not. In time, the young pass that very tune into their, onto their own. Imagine, Boyo, the wee baton being passed from bird to bird like a teeny tin whistle. Sounds like Chinese whispers to me. Then you didn't listen, Sonny. A bird's skinny wee brain is a whole universe of sparks. There's order to it all. There's a secret structure within it now. Guess. It's called the what system? The Chinese system. It's called the song system. You didn't know that, me boyo. I knew with your big brawny brain. I do now. All for one. And one for all. If one of us goes, all of us go. His father had left them both when he was four years old. Stoic as she was, she never spoke about it, but even as a child he could see the scour of betrayal that etched her bearing. From then she had raised him single-handedly, not marrying again until he was well in his twenties and paired up himself. The week after his father left, she had enrolled him in the local boxing club. Fearing defence was the one thing she could not teach him. He was the youngest in the club, but they made allowances. You need a backbone for battle, son. Life can be rough. You need to be a fighter. His after-school hours were spent bantam weight fighting when she was working and on walks when she was off, probing Ben Bulban and Brickleave Mountains, Ross's Point and Lissadell shorelines, Slish, Union, Hazelwood, Forest Boat Native and Planted. Deep among the trees, she would pull a leaf in passing, thinking he hadn't noticed. Ten strides later, she would put him to the test. Look at this leaf. Look carefully at the shape, the colour, the size. Do you remember which tree it comes from? Think back now, me book. What trees did we pass? Do you remember? Birch, Rowan, Ash? Bet you don't remember, do you, me little warrior? Too busy looking to see, isn't that right? Hands clasped behind her, she was always ahead, talking back to him, knowing he was there. He followed, keeping pace, slowing or quickening, step by step. Often she would stop mid-stride, head cocked like the hunting beagles of her Monaghan youth. Wait a minute, whisht! In the forest stillness, a meagre voice would make itself heard, calling out. She would answer the bird with a mimicking whistle, sometimes adding a twist to the tune. A figari, she called it, to confuse either him or the bird, he was never sure. He's telling me get out of his way, she would explain. Bird and woman would spar in the centre of the woods, his mother holding her own despite her retreat. On one of their last walks together, she sang for him, a lilting lullaby she had learned from her mother. She kicked, the loose earth at her, at, she kicked the loose earth at her feet as she struggled to recall the once familiar lyric. Doesn't matter, ma, forget it, he tried to steer her away from the song. But I know it, she said, I know I remember it, what the hell? Berating herself, she persevered through to the end with many restarts, throat clearings and embarrassed snorts. Christ Almighty, I used to sing it word for word, she said to the ground as he walked home behind her. The lone bird call on the CD curves through the scratch of white noise and rings around the two of them, her hand still firm around his. He looks at her. Her eyes are closed. He feels a cramp stirring in his thigh. Slouching to a stand, he is careful not to move the held hand. He stretches his limbs looking over her shoulder at the framed pictures on the sitting room wall. A photo of his ex-wife, enveloped by their three daughters, Mickey Mouse and complete in Disneyland, Paris. A photo of his eight-year-old self, holding a giant amateur boxing belt above his head, his mother's hand appearing off frame. 
a photo of her with his stepfather planting a tree together on some anniversary. A yellow photo of her dead parents, his grandparents, on Hapenny Bridge in Dublin, tawny arms about each other, their lips a strange and sensual pink against amber skin. The walks are over now. A fixed silence shrouds her. It began with, for, with the forgetting of her lullaby, then many more small things, increasing in peculiarity until there came a point when they could no longer be dismissed as the curious eccentricities of age. She folded steadfast inward. First she became fearful of driving and had begun asking him to take her into Sligo town on occasional trips. Would you mind, real quick, I'm a bit, would you ever? On one of those journeys they had stood at the counter after he pulled in to refuel at Ballinode Garage. Feeling indebted to him, her pride insisted she would pay. Hold your wish, she said, as she picked three chocolate bars for the girls and pulled a credit card from her wallet with elegant flourish. Just a minute now, hold on, she said, when she tried to remember the card's pin number. A queue behind them, a cashier silent, she quick-tapped the edge of the card off the cash register. What is it again? What is it? The tip of me tongue. Hold on now. Her voice getting quieter, her head hanging. The tapping stopped. He paid. She followed him out. What class of a figure was that, boss? He said to lighten her. It was on the tip of my tongue, was all she replied. On the journey home, his headphone girls eating the chocolate and tipping their phones on the back seat, he saw a tinge of shame bloom on her ears and cheekbones. Then, after years of silence on the affair, she began asking after his ex-wife, his daughter's mother, the woman he had left a month after the birth of their third child. When will you bring her over? Or will I come to visit you? I haven't seen her in an age. My only daughter-in-law. Come on now. He had worked hard over the years to get his mother to say she was happy for him. Whatever you think yourself, she had finally conceded. It had taken a long time to break through her lived belief in fidelity and reach her deeper faith in her son. This acceptance was as far as she could go. He was grateful for it. Now he willingly gave up trying to drag her back from her surreal dominions to the stark present where he lived alone, saw little of his ex-wife and only knew his daughters from a self-imposed distance, a forum patrolled by group, group WhatsApp, Skype and Instagram. He joined her in the guilt-free heaven where everybody was exquisitely fine and yes, she's fine, ma, all good at home, all good with the lovely wife, the better half, the missus. In fact, she was asking for you and we will visit you together soon for sure. All five of us, we land in on you. Yes, yes, we will. He began to look forward to these deviations into parallel universes. He began to count on them. Things took on a seductive slant. It was enthralling if he just let go and went with her an addictive through the looking glass kind of offbeat. Yes, everything is fine. We've got our good things, you and me. You've got yours and I've got mine. If one of us goes ma, all of us go. Slow and steady, she clocked these forays up, rooting deeper on each of her rambles. There was the time she had made her martinis. His stepfather was away for the evening and because he had noted a strangeness seeping in, had asked him to come keep watch. Your mother can be quirky, you know what I mean. It's difficult. Say nothing, but keep an eagle eye out. He was amused by his stepfather's anxiety and pleased by his secret new role as warden. He sat at her side by the splintering fire in the sitting room. At dusk, as was her custom, she got up, declaring it was time for a pre-dinner drink. It was. Would he like one of her martini rossos? He certainly would. 
It was her regular drink and her regular time for drinking it. He listened to her murmuring, clinking and clanging in the kitchen. He puzzled over doors opening and closing, soft splashing punctuated with long pauses of inactivity. When she returned without the drinks, he asked her where her martinis were. Martinis, yes. Where are my, my martinis? Indeed. She gazed at her hands. Indeedy. He went into the kitchen and followed the trail. Her Waterford crystal closet was open. The glasses were untouched. The hall door was ajar and there was a thin track of lilac splashes leading from beyond the hall to the kitchen sink. Into thin-stemmed glass vases she had poured lavender hand lotion. She had placed the vases among the household cleaners beneath the kitchen sink. He discarded them, made the martinis and rejoined her by the fire. There you are now, me last drink up. She looked at him, then at the drinks. Indeed, Dee Dee. He didn't question her, she didn't ask, but did he see a dawning veil of fear settle on her brow as she stared through her vermouth into the fire? They clinked drinks and she applauded him on his martini-making skills, saying he had learnt it from the best and that could be his job from now on whenever he visited. He accepted with solemnity his appointment and made several more martini rustles that night. Each time they clinked anew. Each time he accepted his appointment once again. In the years between then and now, she had wandered on shaky limbs into the forest behind her home, looking for her workplace the secretarial job she had retired from years before. For feck's sake, I have a meeting in five minutes. Where are my bloody notes? She strayed between the alder saplings, lifting skirts of foliage at the base of each one. Didn't you hear, ma? Stupid meeting's been cancelled till tomorrow. Come on back into the house. Let's have something to celebrate. A year later, reduced to a Charlie Chaplin truffle, she had faltered down her long driveway, clasping two plastic bags, one with his stepfather's scarf and hat, the other with her old wellies. When questioned, she revealed impatiently that she needed to be getting home, that the bus wouldn't wait for her, wouldn't wait for anyone. As lovely as it is, I'm bucking out of here. I can't stay another night. Just one more. We'll hit the road for home tomorrow. One more night for the crack. Come on, ma, please. She hesitated, brow furrowing, and considered him standing before her. Right-o, one more night. By the time they had walked back up the driveway, her anchor had shifted from her youth to her long-lost first marriage. On seeing her husband wringing his hands in the hallway, she had asked him who the hell he was, what did he think he was doing in her damn house, where was her husband? His stepfather hid in their, hid in their bedroom and cried, after he first reassured his wife of 25 years that he would find her husband, that he would bring him back to her, not to worry. He was sure her husband would never leave her. Later. After putting his mother to bed, he showed his stepfather the plastic bag she had been clutching. On seeing his favourite scarf and hat folded with loving care inside, his stepfather smiled gratefully. The years of her second marriage, contented though they were, was a period she now rarely hovered over. Her darkening mind favoured the bright spell of her youth. Her husband struggled to forgive her and pressed his stepson to take over. From then, he began to spend more time with them, ready and eager as he was to stand unruffled alongside her in the shifting and fickle maze of her restless mind. His wearied stepfather sleeping in the guest room, he set up his childhood camp bed on the floor beside her. He slept lightly, shoes ready beside him, sleeping bag unzipped. Late one night on one of his stays, she had glowered like 
like a spoiled child when he told her she didn't own a dog, hadn't owned a dog since her school day beagles, so there was no point standing there with a torch at the open back door in her pyjamas, calling out for Brimsy, her favourite childhood beagle, calling out to the silence in the dark forest beyond the garden, her torch beam piercing the silver birch. Come back, Brimsy. Where are you? Come home, you wee runt. The scratchy white noise on the, CV, on the CD has receded and is now just a faint hushing buzz. Unchained, the sound of the lone bird call climbs through the tangled wood and spirals around them sitting sidelong like a pair of spent vagrants by the empty black hearth in her sun-filled sitting room. Can you hear the woodland bird song, Ma? Do you remember this CD? It's the dawn chorus. You like it. Do you remember, Ma? Hmm? Yes. Do you remember hearing the bird song in the forest? Do you remember walking in the forest, Ma? Hazelwood and Deer Park and the mad test you'd give me with the leaves? Yes. Yes, it's the only word left. He structures his questions so her affirmations make sense. Are you good? Yes. Am I good? Yes. Yes. He isn't sure if she understands what he says. He doesn't test her for fear of a truth. For as long as she can yes, he can hold on to her. Is everything grand? Yes. Yes, it is. I'm here, ma. His silenced phone vibrates from inside his pocket. He looks down. Seeing the tiny mute light pulse desperate through the fabric's innards, he closes his eyes tight. Holding his breath, he counts down the pinging cry. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Out. The beat stops. He breathes in. Kneeling in front of her, he grips her hand. Her eyes glide within a narrow space, searching slow. She finds him, locks on. The white noise has faded. The bird's call is clear. By cribes, I think that could be a lark singing on the CD. Wait, no, not a skylark. Is that a woodlark, ma? Is that La Lola Arborea? Yes. Maybe it is, it could be. He settles back down beside her, closes his eyes again. One for all and all for one. He pictures them, the three of them, mother, lark, son, circling each other, following each other, watching each other, like swaggering cage fighters. He wonders how many generations have passed since the recording of that dawn. How many years the lone woodlark is dead. Has it left any trace? Are its hollow bones dissolved into nothing? Lalola arborea, Lalola arborea, Lalola, Lalola, Lalola. The little bird fills the sitting room with its soft questioning call, pauses, calls again. Soon he hears the spittle-filled whistle begin at his side. His mother has taken up the call and is trying to respond. His phone begins to throb again. He feels it on his skin. He leans down towards the silent pulse. A small white window pleads behind the heavy cloth of his combat shorts. He touches the little screen through the material. A blurred photo of his smiling daughters, lined up side by side like Russian nesting dolls. A warmth seeps through to his fingertips. If one of us goes, all of us go. He pulls the phone out, puts the girls on speaker, places the phone face up on the floor in front of him, the bright young faces peering wide-eyed and open-mouthed up at the ceiling. Daddy! Dad! His mother's whistle sharpens, lifting alongside the lark, the bridled air twirling from her lank mouth with a little figuri at the, at the end. La-lulla, la-lulla. The girls laugh and try to imitate, 
blowing soundlessly through puckered mouths before turning to a la-la lilting song. He joins his mother's call, pressing lips hard together, the two of them hands held, eyes closed, heads back, wet mouths, wet mouths pursed tight, giving it everything, their whistles mingling with the three tiny songs from the floor, all soaring together to the sitting room ceiling. The Noella Bias podcast is produced in a small back room in the Shimas Heaney Centre. Still World's Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Bias Press. With thanks to Ruby Colley for her music. The Noella